Our final reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 24 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the garden of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephtatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Merciful, gracious Father, we humbly come before you in your word this morning, knowing that apart from your Spirit's work in our lives to soften our hearts, to receive it, we have nothing. Soften our hearts this morning. Help us to receive your word and transform us by the power of your grace. In the name of Christ, we pray and we look to you and we come to you. Amen. Amen. This, this past uh, week, our family took a couple days to uh, have a couple days off, and they call that a, a vacation. And, you know, we went to the Great Wolf Lodge. I don't know if you've ever been there before. It's, it's, it's fun, but it's a little bit chaotic and crazy at the same time. So I don't know if it's restful, but the children had fun running around and one of the most fun things about this for, that our children found, aside from the fun slides, was the, this giant wave pool. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a wave pool before, but you're, you know, you're floating around. You kind of get this small sense of how helpless you are as you kind of jump into the wave, and the wave throws you this way or that way and uh, throws you up on, on the shore. And of course, a, a wave pool pales in comparison to the ruggedness that you find in the ocean. If you've ever swam in the ocean, you, you, you sense how small you are. You begin to realize how little control you have, how helpless you are in the face of such strength. You know, in, in last week with our encounter with Jesus with the, with the Pharisees, you know, he found the Pharisees adding to God's law. And it was the Pharisees' attempt to actually control the waves, to control God, to control the world. But they found out they can't do that. 
Right? You, can't, you can't add to God's law. You can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself clean. And that's one of the points that Jesus was pointing out to the Pharisees last week, that only I can make you clean. Only I can fix a defiled heart. Only I can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's saying, I can't be contained by your rules and expectations. And this week, on the, on the heels of that, Jesus is showing them how uncontrollable, how wild he actually is. How little control they have by going to reach out to the Gentiles. In this past portion, Jesus is now entering into the Gentile region, uh, which the Gentiles were considered the unclean, the defiled ones. And if you're not familiar with the term Gentile, Gentiles are simply non-Jewish people. Uh, they are not part of God's original chosen people. They were considered unclean because they had no way to actually clean themselves. They had no way to purify themselves, which is a problem because if I was going to guess, or I guess most of us, if not all of us in this room, come from Gentile lineage. So what are they to do? What are we to do? How do we clean ourselves? Well, you know, God's plan from the beginning was that his chosen people, uh, Abraham and his descendants, were actually chosen in order that they would bring salvation to the whole world, even especially the Gentiles, to bring them the cleansing that can only happen from Yahweh. You know, it says that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. This is what Israel was supposed to be. What we're finding is they're actually not very good at it. They think it's all about them. And Jesus picks up that mission that he originally called his people to. And in this passage, he's foreshadowing the work, the, the future mission of the church and how the church actually picks up this mission to be a blessing to the world as is grafted into God's people and sent into the world to proclaim the work, the excellencies of, of Christ, the great Redeemer, the one that can actually bring cleansing, the one that can bring the healing that we all desire and seek. And in this morning, we're going to see this big picture plan of God unfold in these two stories. And what we find is actually nothing short of cosmic redemption that's happening. And in these two stories, we see this complete mission of God, how it was always meant for all nations. And that God will not rest until all of creation, the entire cosmos, has been redeemed and restored from the effects of the fall. And we see this story play out in these two stories in two ways. The first is this, that Christ's cosmic work of salvation redeems the unworthy. Christ's cosmic work of salvation redeems the unworthy. Look with me here again at verse 24. He says, and from there, he, speaking of Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. So this story is picking up what we've been seeing in a theme throughout from chapter 6, where Jesus has actually been trying to find a space to rest with his disciples. They've been going at it night and day. They need rest here again. He's kind of looking for a little bit of a reprieve. Um, but then we find that that's not to happen here. Verse 25, immediately, no luck for Jesus in resting. Immediately, someone in need finds him. And it says that she falls at his feet. And you can kind of get this sense of her desperation. And then we see it. She's begging him, pleading with him, save my daughter. She's likely been to all sorts of different things to try to get her daughter healed, to get her well. And nothing's working. So she's heard of Jesus, she's heard of this man, and she's like, save my daughter. You are my last hope. You are my only hope. And this is where we might expect, you know, the nice and neat 
kind of Jesus to respond with something like he said before, like, go, your faith has made you well. But instead, he actually says one of the most insulting, troubling things that Jesus says in the Gospels. I don't know if you're anything like me. Sometimes I get this picture of Jesus in my head, and the picture I have in my head doesn't always match with what the Bible actually says. Then you come across passages like this, and you're like, wait, well, that's not the Jesus that is on the bumper sticker, right? And we read this in verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you read that, and you think, did he really just say that? Did Jesus just insinuate that this woman is a dog? And that's pretty offensive. Even in our culture, we know that you don't do that. So what does this mean? What is he doing? I think there's a couple things happening here. For one, when Jesus is talking about children, he's actually talking about Israel. He's saying, I'm, I first, I've come for my children. It's not yet time for this great mission to the Gentiles, which is, we know, a big aspect of the New Testament. And you see, you see this happening throughout Acts, and this is almost foreshadowing this move to, to the Gentiles. But, it, you know, in, in the Matthew 15 version of the story, Jesus says it a little bit more explicitly. He said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's saying in part that, listen, I was first sent to, to Israel to redeem these chosen people. But it's still really harsh sounding to call someone a dog. So what is that about? Well, the, to the Jewish people, the Gentiles were seen as dogs. They were not the chosen by God people. They were the defiled ones. Uh, and the Messiah, they had hoped, would actually come and deliver the Jewish people from these dogs, from these overlords and the Romans and all these pesky Gentiles that bothered them and made them unclean. And, you know, the primary Jewish idea at the time for what Jesus was going to come and do was to take the throne and actually cleanse the land of all these people, of all these dogs. And, you know, for them, if they're watching on in this moment, they're probably finally thinking, finally, Jesus is doing something that we expect him to do. Good. They are dogs, Jesus. Finally, you're doing something that we want you to do, calling her what she is. In the midst of this kind of situation, we find her answer, I think, is equally as stunning as Jesus' statement in verse 28. What, is, what does she say? She says, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs need something to eat. And in this, what we're really finding is that Jesus is actually testing her. He's saying, listen, you actually aren't worthy to receive my help, which is a test, because none of us are actually worthy to receive his help. And she's like, you're right. And she's saying, so maybe I am a dog, but dogs need food too. And in this, she's actually almost testing Jesus back, testing his mercy, right? It says here in this passage, she has heard of him. She's likely heard of how he's cast out demons before, how he's healed the sick, how he's proclaimed the kingdom. And she says, yes, I might be a Gentile. I might be one of the unclean, unchosen people, but if you are the person that I've heard about, then you can actually help me. Do your thing. Be merciful to me as you are merciful to others. Do the Jesus thing. Which, you know, I think a part of us, at least my response, when I see people maybe testing Jesus, testing God, is you can't help but think, well, I, that's a strange thing to test God. I don't think we're supposed to do that. But in this way, this is actually what we find a lot in the Psalms. You know, Psalm 88, 1 through 2 begins with basically, you are my salvation, come and save me. Testing God, saying, this is what you promised, now come and do the things that you've promised. It's actually an appropriate response to God. And we find that Jesus feels the same way in his response here in verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. 
And the Matthew 15 version of this, it's more explicit. He says he commends her faith. He tells, for your great faith, your daughter is made well. Your faith has restored her spirit. What we find in this is that her right estimation of herself, her right estimation of understanding of who she is and her status as she is unworthy, led to a right estimation of actually who Christ is. Right? She realized that she was unworthy. She knew she had no status, which was true, but she also knew who Jesus was, that he was actually kind, that he was compassionate, that he was merciful. And she throws herself down at his feet, knowing that a crumb from the table of Jesus is better than a feast from any other table. And this Gentile woman who's doing this, acting like this, is actually commended to you and I as a model of faith. You know, in the gospel, especially in Mark, it's actually really rare to find Jesus commend someone's faith. And here we find it. To the unclean, the unworthy, he shows the wideness of his mercy and says, be like her. Imagine if there was Pharisees watching on, their jaw just dropping. Be like her? She's the unclean. Dog, you want me to be like her? And he's like, yes. Nobody is actually worthy at my table unless you come through me. He has come to save the unworthy. He's come to save you. He's come to save me. And this is where we learn we actually don't need to be offended by being unworthy. We actually need the humility to respond like this woman responded, to humbly fall at the feet of Christ, trusting him to work as he always has. And so here we find the cosmic redemption of Christ beginning as he models the work that he's called his people to, bringing uh, the redemption message to those who are far off, proclaiming it even to those who we think are dirty and unworthy, because no one, if we have right estimation of ourselves, is more unworthy and undeserving than you and I. And once we can see this, we begin to see just how great Christ's work is. That if it can save me, then it can save anyone. And as good as this is, though, it actually doesn't end there. But the work of Christ is not only a spiritual internal work, but it's an external work as well. And this is what we find here, secondly, that Christ's cosmic work of salvation undoes the curse. Christ's cosmic work of salvation undoes the curse. Look with me back here at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on them. So they're back near the Sea of Galilee, but still in the Gentile area. Here we find another person that has need. And this person gets brought to Jesus and says he's unable to hear. He can't speak properly. He hasn't heard like this lady had heard about the things of Christ. And the picture that comes to my mind is that of someone fixing something that that they've created. Imagine if you got this piece of pottery made and then it, it got a crack in it and you brought it back to the person who made it to mend it, to make it whole again. Uh, This is almost a sense of what is happening. The Christ who created all things is now being asked and called them good is now being asked to mend this person. He's now looking at this world that he created good. He created a man to hear. He created him to be able to speak, and now he can't. He's looking at a world that's been marred by the fall. And the, the reality is we're all affected by the fall. I don't have to go through lists. We all experience decay. Our brains don't always work properly. You see that in me all the time. Uh, We experience weeds in our garden. We experience death. We experience aging. Our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. 
All these things are not the way they're supposed to be. This man should not be death. His ears were created to hear. His tongue was, was created to speak. And here, a victim of the fall, it's not his fault that his ears and, and tongue don't work. And in this broken state, he is brought to Jesus, the creator, the one who created him, the one that can actually fix him, mend him. And see what Jesus does here, starting in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. So first, he's, he's taking him aside privately. Jesus is showing this great care to get them some privacy. He's away from the crowd and the onlookers. He's not trying to make a spectacle of this man, but he was caring for him. And it says he puts his fingers in his ear. It's a very strange thing. It's so physical. It's uncomfortable. If you imagine someone putting their finger in your ear, you don't want them to do that. Uh, you know, he, he could have healed him with a word, and yet he is putting his body right again. It's like someone fixing the leg on a table. He's putting his finger in his ear to, to fix him, but he doesn't stop there. It says he, he spits, and he spits his hand. He touches the man's tongue. It's quite the image. I've never seen a stained glass window of Jesus with his hand around a tongue and his finger in someone's ear. Maybe we could do that in our church one day. But this is the image that we have here. It's uncomfortably intimate. And then something interesting happens. It says he sighs. He groans. He groans a deep groaning, literally. Which when I read that word, I immediately think of Romans 8, where it talks about how all creation is actually groaning, waiting for the redemption of humanity. Where it talks about our prayers being groans. It actually says the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. Jesus is groaning, joining the chorus of all creation that's broken. Groaning for this man. Groaning a groan that this man can't groan. Lamenting the brokenness, interceding on his behalf, saying, be opened. And the effects that have flowed since the rebellion in the garden on this man are instantly reversed. His ears are open. His tongue released. Imagine hearing for the first time, hearing your first cello prelude by Bach, hearing a church lift its voices together for the first time. Or imagine if you've never been able to be understood with your tongue. Because the closest we probably have to that, unless you have a problem with speaking, is going to be living in another country. And imagine finally someone understands what you said. That's what this man is happening all at once. How overwhelming that must have been for him. His senses restored, himself healed. And in verse 36, we find Jesus tells him, like he has before in Mark, listen, let's keep this quiet. Don't tell people. You know, we've talked about this before. Why does Jesus do this? But it's mostly because it's not Jesus' time yet. It's not his time to yet to, to be known by everyone, to go to the cross. And so he tries to keep things quiet so he can go about and do his work. But they can't help it. But you can't blame him. If you've never been able to speak or hear before, I don't think you could help saying who did this to you. And it's funny, it says the more that they try to, he tries to keep them quiet, the more they proclaim the excellencies of who Christ was. And in verse 37 it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were confounded by Christ. Have you ever been confounded by Christ before? And his own work in your own life, and how he's worked impossible things. Bringing restoration to, to relationships that you thought would, were broken beyond repair. Maybe you've experienced his own healing in your own life. Astonished, confounded they are. And they say he has done all things well. 
which is amazing because this is the same language that's actually used in creation where God creates and he calls all things well, good. It's the same uh, Greek equivalent of what we find in the Old Testament. He's calling all things good, which is this tie-in to show us that Jesus is reversing the curse, making the created order good again, calling it good again, making the deaf to hear, the, the, the mute to speak, binding up Satan and his minions. And Isaiah speaks of this reversal happening when the Messiah comes. Jesus bringing about cosmic redemption, restoring all that is, has gone wrong, our defilement, our unrighteousness, the effects of our defilement, a broken creation, all of it being put right. What an amazing story this is. What an amazing truth. And what we find is that this is work that Christ is the only one that can do it. In both these stories, what we find is two people that are actually helpless. Two people that are at the ends of themselves. They finally turn to Jesus and Jesus heals them. Which for us, we got to ask, are you at the end of yourself? Are you still trying to make yourself whole? Are you still trying to mend your, your own spirituality? Are you trying to make yourself right? This work is beyond you. All you can do is go to Christ, but when you do, he will make you well. We are all helpless. We can't restore ourselves from our spiritual depravity, nor can we reverse the curse, no matter how, uh, how far the medical developments go. But thankfully, that's not our job to do. It's Christ's work, and it's what he's come to do. We read that even in John 3.16. This is the work he has come to do. Now we need to get out of the way and let him do it. And as he does it in our own lives, you know, we're called to proclaim this. Because for us, the time actually has come. You have been redeemed. Even the, even the decay in your body, death has no more hold of you if you are in Christ because he has taken the d- decay of the cosmos on himself on the cross. Or he has taken our defilement, our uncleanliness. He has taken our spiritual deadness, our sin on himself. He has taken the effects of sin on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. And he conquers death as he rises again from the dead. So now that we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? There is no more sting in death because the resurrection of Christ has triumphed. And although you will still suffer the effects of the fall, both in body uh, and, and in a world that is groaning and in hearts that are still drawn to sin, it, although that's true, in Christ we have a sure hope that the dark hold of this world is coming to an end. In fact, it's already broken. It's already defeated. As Christ has conquered the grave, God's kingdom is growing on this earth as it is in heaven. And we're experiencing the reversal first in our own spirits, in our own lives, born again by the Spirit of God, and secondarily in the created order, slowly being made right as we join in the work of Christ. So our hope this morning is if we call on him, rest in him, to be needy, to be humble, to cast ourselves at his feet, experience his healing. You may have physical ailments till the day that you die, but in Christ. Our hope is that these two will pass away and we will live in eternity with him in a new creation, one with no sin, no more decay in body or spirit. This should lead us to proclamation, to worship, to tell others, to share of these marvelous works of Christ, that the world can be made right by the work of him. May we be this kind of people. As we put roots in this space, may we be humble, may we encounter the depth of our neediness, and may we fall on Christ alone for our salvation. May we be a people who proudly and loudly proclaim the wondrous works of Christ from this space to the ends of the earth. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, who holds all things together, who is now holding this space together, I pray that you would work 
miracles in our own lives. That you would make us humble, that you would cast us at your feet, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would help us to know that you are God and you are good. For all of us here who may or may not be struggling with these things, I pray that you would encourage us by the power of your spirit, that you would draw us out of our hiding, and that you'd help us to experience the healing touch that can only happen when we encounter you. May it be so. In the name of Christ, amen.